perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And welcome to another Thinking God podcast where I talk to people of faith who have a voice of hope in a world that seems uh, sometimes not so hopeful. I do appreciate all of the emails and phone calls and feedback I've had. Um, some really good uh, uh, encouragement and also some really good constructive criticism on a few things. And just appreciate that people are listening and hope you'll continue to spread the word as we bring in these voices. And, and they've been really interesting so far. Today is no exception. We have Tony Campolo. And Tony uh, many of you have probably heard of or, or maybe even heard speak over the years. I have had the opportunity, as I mentioned during the podcast, of interviewing Tony at least once every decade for the last 40 years. Tony has been a, a longtime voice for putting action to his faith and encouraging others to do the same. And he, he founded, uh, was one of the founders of Red Letter Christians that really talk about taking Jesus' word seriously. And so we were really excited when Tony took time to talk to us. Tony is 82 and still extremely active, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Dr. Tony Campolo has long been a prophetic Christian voice in the wilderness, calling out for social justice, economic justice, and peacemaking long before those were priorities and had much traction in the mainstream modern church. He has been a spiritual advisor to a president, an author of more than 35 books, has spoken almost everywhere, and is professor of sociology at Eastern University. Is also co-host of a television show, Hashing It Out with his pal, author, pastor, seminary professor, grace advocate, and conservative Steve Brown at a time when almost no civil discussion was going on between those having views on the left and the right. Tony is also co-founder of Red Letter Christians and contributes regularly to redletterchristians.org website and is also active on Facebook and Twitter. But do not call him an evangelical. Well, welcome, Dr. Campola. Uh, yeah, well, I don't want to be called an evangelical. I hold to all the beliefs that have uh, really marked the evangelical theology. I believe in the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed. I have a high view of Scripture, believing that the Bible was written by men who were imbued with the Holy Spirit and guided in what they wrote uh, so that they produced writings that were an infallible guide for faith and practice. I... uh, I believe that salvation comes through having a personal relationship with the resurrected Christ. I I believe that when he he not only died on the cross for our sins, but he was resurrected and that we can encounter him and relate to him and uh, in that relationship uh, be transformed into the kinds of persons that he wants us to be. So I believe in the doctrines of evangelicalism. However, evangelicalism has increasingly become identified with a a value system, a cultural value system, uh, that uh, provides some concerns. You know, the fact that uh, close to 80% of all evangelicals uh, support Donald Trump, and that, you know, people's political allegiance is, uh, is one thing, but when a whole group of people... Uh, tend to overwhelmingly support one party and one candidate. I get concerned uh, because uh, I, I think it's politicizing uh, Jesus Christ, and I think that that's uh, a bad thing to do. Uh, I, uh, when I when I say to people I'm an evangelical, these flags go up. They say, "Oh, you're uh, you're anti." Uh, women, you uh, you basically are homophobic, you're xenophobic, you're afraid of foreigners uh, coming into this country, uh, you're anti-environmentalist, uh, you're pro-gun, you know, it goes down the list. Uh, you, you don't believe in global warming. I mean, this is the kind, these are the kinds of conclusions that, that people are reaching about me or anyone else who calls himself or herself an evangelical. So while I believe in everything that the evangelical uh, tradition holds, I, uh, I have chosen more and more to identify myself as a red-letter Christian. And that, of course, refers to those uh, words of Jesus that are highlighted in red in many of the old Bibles, and some of the new Bibles as well. 
uh, we think that Jesus spells out a radical countercultural lifestyle. And I don't know that uh, many evangelicals are willing to embrace that radical, radical, radical uh, um, biblical lifestyle as highlighted in the red letter. So that's a long answer to the statement uh, about being an evangelical. I am evangelical in theology. I think that the label has connotations and baggage that, that are problematic. Do you think that's primarily in America, or is that evangelicalism around the globe? Because you travel a lot. Well, my sense is it's primarily in America, but we must come to the awareness that what happens in America and what happens specifically in American evangelicalism uh, tends to condition what uh, Christians believe around, around the world. Uh, we are an overpowering presence uh, no matter where you go. Uh, American Christianity molds uh, Christianity in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. It, it does do that. And so uh, what we uh, are and what we say and what we think is, uh, is really very important. Now, I do understand why a lot of evangelicals identify uh, with, uh, with the right wing of, of the Republican Party. Uh, because the left wing of the Democratic Party has tended to be uh, pro-gay marriage, has tended to be uh, pro-abortion, basically uh, pro-choice. And given those particular issues, which can be dominating issues in the consciousness of many Christians, it's easy to understand why they flow in that direction. But to not only identify with those two issues in a conservative fashion, but to uh, raise questions about about immigration and do we really want to identify with uh, somebody who who calls uh, Mexicans who, who who have emigrated to the United States uh, people who are thieves and rapists and murderers and uh, and you say well, well wait a minute uh, uh, we hear reports of such people doing these things. And the answer is quite simple. Of course you do. Uh, what is there? Something like uh, uh, 20 million uh, Mexican-Americans living in the United States? Maybe more than that. Probably far more than that. Uh, that's, that one should find a rapist or a murderer or a thief among 20 million people? Uh, I, I think that's to be expected. To, in fact, paint with a broad brush, brush uh, such people it seems to me grossly unfair. And, uh, you know, his comments about, about climate change is scary to me. Uh, I mean, the overwhelming reports of scientists is that climate change is a very serious problem. Uh, and uh, we need to deal with that. Uh, so I, 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 worry about, uh, I worry about evangelicals identifying with this. I know that uh, people in, at, in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, are very ambivalent on climate change, and they, they're not ready to support a candidate who believes in climate change in many, many, many instances. So their official documents never come out uh, claiming that there is climate change. Uh, they say, uh, you know, this is still up for discussion. It's still up for, uh, for research. And yet I, I think that no matter how much research is done, that those who are opposed to believing in, in, in climate change will not be changed. Their, their minds are fixed. This scares me. Well, politicization of, um, of the church is nothing new. I mean, at least in America, at least as far back as when they were trying to use it to bust unions and then later to oppose civil rights. But it seems like now it's not a single issue. There's this laundry list of things that you either are for or against, and there's no in-between. Has that been something you've watched change in your four or five decades in ministry? Well, I, I think that there is a, uh, a syndrome to buy into certain perspectives. Uh, I, I can't really answer that last question with any degree of assurance uh, for me to reflect on what's happened over the last three decades or four decades and answer that question would take some reflection on my part. I, I'm not sure I can do that right now, but uh, let me just say there is a laundry list now. And let me just say 
that um, that there is just as much uh, politicizing on the left as there is on the right. There are those who want to make Jesus into a Republican, but there are also those who want to make Jesus into a left-wing Democrat. I mean, it seems like each group is not satisfied with the Bible. The Bible says God created us in his image, and each group has said, no, uh, we're going to recreate God in our own image. And so the right does it and the left does it. And uh, I, I need to affirm that Jesus transcends the political ideologies of either the left or the right and comes with judgment on both particular uh, ideological perspectives. Well, you actually wrote a book, Is Jesus a Democrat or Republican? Why, why is Jesus not a right-wing Republican and why is Jesus not a left-wing Democrat? Well, you know, as you said, I wrote a book on it. So you <laughs> <don't> <laughs> Available at Amazon and all your final I mean, there's, there's like 12 chapters in the book and I can't uh, summarize it in a line or two. But I think you've got a general uh, opinion. I mean, um, you know, the those who are evangelicals have... Uh, serious problems with, uh, let's say, abortion. And, and uh, when the Democratic Party comes out so strongly supporting abortion, that causes problems for some people who call themselves evangelicals and even for red-letter Christians. And on the uh, other extreme, the right, I think that the uh, attitudes towards immigrants uh, and e even, I would have to say, there's a lot of racist attitudes operative there. Uh, I mean, I think you can take, I think that you can take uh, uh, opposition uh, of Barack Obama uh, very easily. Uh, I mean, you can uh, point out the policy differences that you have with this man. But what scares me is that in so much of the rhetoric that I hear, especially on Christian radio, it's, it's not just opposition to policy. It tends to be a vitriolic condemnation of a person and I'll have to tell you, a lot of people are saying, is a lot of this coming out of a racist attitude that they, there's an inability to embrace an African-American president just because he's African-American or are the issues what upset us? In short, have, we, have, have some people made up their minds that this is an evil man and therefore have gone about uh, trying to look for evidence to justify their conclusions? Uh, so many evangelicals, no matter what is said, no matter how much evidence is given, uh, think that uh, this man is, is, is a Muslim. And he's done all that he possibly can do uh, to say otherwise, but it hasn't really washed. And, and so there's kind of a, a, a groundswell among uh, some evangelicals uh, to say this man is, is not a good man. I think you can... Uh, I think you can uh, differ with policies without saying it's not a good man. I, I disagree with the policies of, of uh, Donald Trump. I'm not about to make a value judgment about him as a person. Uh, that's not for me to do. I, I think that's not for anyone to do. Well, that's been one of the things that's been a hallmark, I think, of your career is you have always uh, had a balanced view of the person. One of my favorite stories you told, and I don't remember where I heard it, was about George uh, Bush, um, George W. Bush, toweling you off when you all got caught in the rain somewhere at an outdoor event. Yeah, and, that's a touching story. At the dedication of the Clinton Library, it was pouring rain. I was soaked. And as uh, the platform group was going into the library following the ceremony, uh, I felt somebody... Uh, wiping the uh, raindrops off my jacket and uh, with a with a a, a, a handkerchief uh, blotting out the water that was on my neck and on top of my bald head and I I turned around and here was the president of the United States George W Bush I mean and uh, I always felt that whenever one has differences with his policy I feel that this man was a genuinely good guy and I, I think uh, he claims to have had a a good born again experience with uh, with uh, the leadership of Billy Graham, and I take him for what he says. I believe him to be a brother in Christ, and we can have differences on on policies. I I think that the the decision that he made uh, to uh, bring the United States into the uh, Iraqi war was a serious mistake. It's a difference of opinion. It's a, a different conviction on that issue. But that doesn't mean that he is a bad person. 
He did what he thought was right. I think I think he got a lot of bad information passed on to him, a lot of uh, faulty uh, consulting uh, coming from some of his aides. So, uh, you know, we have to, in fact, uh, not make judgments about people uh, while we do make judgments about what people say and what they propagate as their beliefs. Right. And it's not just in politics. Uh, the church has a tendency to demonize people and separate. And in fact, I understand, is it true that you were once subjected to a heresy trial? Once back in the 60s, I, I did, yeah. Um, I didn't know it, that you still did heresy trials, Dr. Well, <laughs> I asked for one. That's why <laughs> it, uh, Chuck Colson had called me and said, you're under attack pretty heavily. And uh and they're calling you a heretic in certain certain circles. And I said, well, there's nothing that can be done about it. And he said, yes, there is. You can have a heresy child and, uh, and have a, a blue-ribbon uh, board of evangelicals evaluate you and come out with the decision. So that's what happened. And among the people on that panel were, uh, uh, you know, J.I. Packer, uh, Rod Macher, uh, the president of Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the, the pastor um, of the uh, who runs the radio program, the Bible Hour. I mean, it was a, a who's who of evangelicals, and they interrogated me for about uh, six hours straight, and um, said, that, you know, I needed to be more careful about my language, but I certainly was not a heretic by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> So I'm officially, I'm officially deemed non-heretical. I am officially deemed um, somebody who has evangelical beliefs. But once again, if if you were to go to uh, the Pew Foundation or any foundation that's doing surveys on people and and say what is the general opinion of people who call themselves evangelicals, the first thing they're going to say is they're homophobic. That's statistically supported by studies, uh, done by researchers. Uh, that's not a label that I want. Uh, you can be uh, concerned about gay marriage and at the same time say, I, I want to love my gay and lesbian brothers and sisters, and what I want for them is what I want for all people in our country. I want justice. You can, you can say those two things and have a view of gay marriage that runs contrary to their interests. Uh, but when you begin to impose your beliefs on other people and say, I'm going to make sure we're going to have a triumphalistic attitude, we're going to take control of government, and we're going to use the force of, of the political sphere to impose what we believe on other people, I think you've gone too far. Well, while many of your positions have remained central in your message, you have shifted on some other things over the years. And the one you just mentioned, you've been very public about your willingness to change your mind and in the area of the LGBTQ community, you did make that change. Can you kind of walk me through how you had a shift in, in, in thought on that? Well, first of all, let me just say, when I put out a statement, I made sure to headline it with, I could be wrong. Uh, I, I struggle with the issue of gay marriage. Um, I, I, I basically uh, came across too many uh, gay young people who suffer and who feel that the church hates them, who uh, feel that they are being diminished uh, in dignity by the church. And so uh, my relationships with people have influenced me. Having said that, I do have to deal with scripture. And uh, as I reflected on scripture, I have to be careful so as not to interpret the Bible as the, uh, as the dominant evangelical culture uh, tells me to interpret it. In other words, the Holy Spirit should guide the interpretation of scripture, uh, not the, uh, uh, the religious uh, tribe to which you belong. Uh, the, the evangelical tribe has been very strong in its opposition to gay marriage. And that influenced me in my interpretation of Scripture for a long time. As I began to pray and read Scripture, and I began to ask, is the Scripture really saying what they're, they tell me it's saying? Uh, let me just take the key passage, which is Romans 1. 
Go back and read it a second time. It says very clearly that Paul is condemning those who turn from their natural affections, i.e., who are naturally heterosexual, and then perform homosexual acts. He's pretty clear about that. Read it. Uh, They turn from their natural affections and do these unnatural things, unnatural to them because they're heterosexual. Well, that's not describing uh, the gay people who are Christians that I know. Uh, In almost every case, well, in every case of the ones I interviewed, uh, they say, we never did have a natural inclination uh, to same-gender attraction. We, we never were. These guys say, we never were attracted to women. Uh, from the earliest time we can remember, uh, the idea of, of uh, being uh, sexually attracted to women was a turnoff to us. That was not our natural inclination. Our natural inclination was, was homosexual, and, and that's, that's just the way we are. So the question then is, then why did Paul write that? And the answer, I think, uh, through research, if you research it with any degree of of, uh, intensity, is that he was writing to the church at Rome in the first chapter of Romans. He was writing to them from Corinth. And in Corinth, uh, the, uh, the worship of Aphrodite was the religion of the city. And, uh, uh, she had a son named Hermes, which uh, from when we get the word hermaphrodite, uh, the truth is that Hermes uh, had the sexual organs of both genders. And in the worship of Aphrodite, uh, they would go to the temple and there were little rooms for men to go into and there would be male prostitutes and there were rooms for women to go into and there they had female prostitutes and they would commit homosexual acts. And Paul is condemning, I believe, and I could be wrong, let me say it again, I could be wrong, I believe that Paul was condemning the obscene sexual orgies that were going on in the temple of Aphrodite uh, in in Corinth uh, when he wrote that. Read the whole passage in context. And they took the image of the incorruptible God and they transformed him into the image of corruptible man, unto four-footed beasts, birds of the air, fowls of the air, and, and, and therefore they ended up worshipping the creature rather than the creator. Therefore God uh, has given them up to uncleanness. In short, he is saying, as the result of idolatry, these horrible things were going on. And so there was a sense in my own thinking that what Paul was condemning was the... Uh, was the the sexual orgies that were obscene that were going on in Corinth in the Temple of Aphrodite and uh, and and in other places around the ancient uh, Hellenistic world uh, and, uh, and and I don't know that that's a condemnation of the loving relationships that go on between many couples that I know who have been uh, together for decades and go to church and are endeavoring as best they can to love Jesus and often have to remain uh, secret about who they are because they know that if they come out about who they are, uh, the evangelical community will reject them. That's a long response, but reflecting on Scripture, thinking about the couples that I knew who who were gay, uh, dealing with students who are weeping and crying because they never chose to be uh, homosexual. Please know this. Uh, nobody knows what causes a homosexual orientation. Nobody knows. Those who say it's inborn, not enough ed- evidence. Those who say it's psychosociological, not enough evidence to prove anything. In reality, most scientists would say it's probably an interplay of a variety of factors, and we're not even sure that any two homosexuals are homosexual for the same reasons. It's very complicated. All we can say is nobody that I know in the male population, and I don't know enough about the female population to speak with any degree of authority, but the male population I can speak to with a degree of authority. I've interviewed several huge numbers of these people, and what I find is they, they, they were never chose to be gay in their orientation. When they discovered who they were sexually, they were upset if they were Christians and depressed because they heard the condemnations that come from the pulpit and they, they began to hate themselves. 
And uh, it's no surprise that so many young men in, uh, commit suicide uh, because they cannot reconcile their sexual orientation with what, on the other hand, is uh, what they believe the church is teaching about gays. Well, you've, you've obviously worked out this position struggling over a long period of time. I can remember stories you've told of speaking before you even had this change of heart uh, to groups of people struggling with it with tears in your eyes because you really, your heart was still there for them. You know, uh, I have to say this, Greg. Uh, I think what disturbs me most is not so much the uh, position that so many evangelicals take towards gays, but the the terrible things they say about these people. There's a general inclination to correlate homosexuality with pedophilia. You know, gays molest children. Statistically, children do get molested, but the molestations by heterosexuals far outstrip the number of molestations committed by homosexuals. There are a lot of terrible things that go on in this world. Uh, sexually molesting children has to be up near the top of the list of horrible things. And Jesus said, whoever offends one of these little ones, better that he was never born. I mean, Jesus says really hard on those who offend children. But to act as though children are being molested because of homosexuals uh, denies the fact that uh, when you look at the number of children who get molested, uh, and the percentage uh, of, of heterosexuals that uh, molest children. It is absolutely unfair to act as though there is a causal relationship between homosexuality and pedophilia. To say that there are homosexuals who, are, who commit uh, the sexual oppression of children, certainly. To say there are heterosexuals that do the same thing, Certainly. And I just think that uh, to paint gays with a broad brush that causes people to despise them, to, to condemn them, uh, to have no understanding of their suffering, it seems to me, is not where the church should be. Well, you, you mentioned earlier you have a high view of Scripture, and you just said that when you, and really throughout your ministry, like I said, I've been familiar with your work and your, your speaking in books for many years. You seem to, if whenever you hit a spot, you're un uncertain, you say you go to Scripture and try to figure out what it's, not just what it says, but what it means. That seems to have been a, a hallmark of your, your ministry. But that's not always easy. No, it's certainly I mean, not. <laughs> you know, you say go to Scripture and that settles it. Right. Uh, well, the reality is, um, I, I, the way I read Scripture in devotional life is I, I read some verses, the Catholics would call this Lectio Divina, and I, I meditate on those verses. And I wait for the Holy Spirit to teach me something from the verses I've just read. The interesting thing is, I can go back to that same passage of Scripture a month later. And in a prayerful style of reading that Scripture, I come away with something, uh, something different, uh, equally useful. I, I've heard people say, you know, I had a terrific problem, an awful problem. It was weighing me down. I went to the Bible and... Lo and behold, some verses jumped out at me that spoke to me and, and, and really brought me under conviction. I had read those verses hundreds of times over the years, but they never said to me what it said at that particular point. And I contend that's because the Holy Spirit was guiding them in what they interpreted the scriptures to say. When I uh, read scripture, I wait for the Holy Spirit uh, to, uh, to guide me. But when it comes to a controversial issue, even when I come to a, a stand, I, I say, but I could be wrong. You say, well, if there's a degree of uncertainty, why do you even say anything about it? And my answer is quite simply on this issue, that I know that over the years I said things categorically about gays that uh, I, I regret. I, I said things that hurt their feelings, that uh, that really created pain for them. And I, I felt I had to say something just to let them know I wasn't thinking quite that firmly anymore against them. Well, and, and, and another issue, and I grew up in a tradition where uh, the Bible is literal and everything, and not just in things that are dressed, but everything. And 
but one of the core teachings, and it still remains one of the central parts of the message of, I looked at the list, most of the nation's largest churches, is this strong attachment to the message of hell. Uh, why do you think that is, and do you believe in a literal hell? Yes, I believe in hell, and I believe that there has to be something after death for those who defy Jesus, for those who uh, live lives uh, that, in fact, bring suffering into the world, that destroy what is good in the world. Uh, there has to be some equitable system uh, to set things uh, in, in the terms of justice. So, yeah, I believe in, in hell. The problem for me is uh, I, I describe why I believe there's a hell, and I think I've stated why I think there are certain people who will go there. But I have to say categorically, I am not ready to make the judgment as to who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. Um, you know, when you read the 25th chapter of Matthew, it's rather startling, isn't it? It is. That's where I was going with this. Yeah, and you know, on the 25th chapter of Matthew, uh, those who go into heaven, half of them are surprised that they are listed among those who are welcomed into the heavenly kingdom. And likewise, there are those who are going to be surprised who thought they were going to get in and don't get in at all. So, uh, you know, if I think that uh, when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, I think that's the reality. Billy Graham said it this way, and I think he said it well. He said, my task is to preach the gospel that delivers people from the consequences of their sin. It is my task to proclaim the good news and to talk about what people need to do to be saved. It is the Holy Spirit's responsibility to bring people under conviction. And it is God, the Heavenly Father's responsibility to make the judgment as to who is in and who is out. I think that designation is the one I want to hold to. Yeah, and, and that, and in Matthew twenty-five, the the other thing is they both ask the same questions. Yeah, uh, it, it's the thing, and it, it really is. It when I see that verse, it reminds me of you know all the the uh, the social justice issues you you've been involved in over the years, and you know the the fact that you have spoken out. I've seen you speak to groups who paid your freight to get you there, and they weren't really happy about what you had to say. <laughs> well, that's, that's the way I guess it should be. But I just say this that. Uh, when we talk about salvation, it always comes through a Christ's death and resurrection. And uh, the resurrection is so important because it's the resurrected Christ who is invited into our lives that transforms us from within and makes us more and more into the kinds of persons that Jesus wants us to be. Yeah, I want to skip ahead of that question. I, and you've, you've talked about it a little bit here, and I know this is, again, something you could write another 35 books on. Who is Jesus, Tony? If somebody asks you on, on the street or on a, a uh, commute or something, you're talking about Jesus. Who is Jesus? What would you tell them? I would say go to Hebrews, the first chapter, the first verse. The God who in times past has revealed himself in diverse ways and in diverse manner has in these last days fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ. That's who Jesus is. He is the incarnation of the God who created the universe. That's who he is. The same God who spun, who spattered the galaxies into space, the same God who created heavens and earth, that same God was born in Bethlehem's manger, grew, lived among us in the incarnated in a man called Jesus of Nazareth. And, and he was, Jesus of Nazareth was the body in whom the God of the universe uh, chose to present himself to humanity. The final revelation of God. Wow. Uh, in, a, in a world that, though, we're seeing that study after study is coming out, particularly kids under the age of 25, they see faith as irrelevant or unattainable. Uh, why do you think that we've come to that? And they don't—I mean—they don't even identify themselves as atheists anymore. It's just they don't see it as relevant. How do we get to that place? Well, it's because you said it because they're under the age of twenty-five. <laughs> I'm, I'm pushing eighty-two. The idea of 
uh, a Christ who uh, will raise me from the dead becomes very important. In the face of death, new issues emerge theologically that people under the age of 25 do not comprehend. They, they, they don't think they're going to die. Oh, you ask them, you think you're going to die? Yeah, you know, all humans die. I'm a human being. I'm going to die. It's a, it's a, a Socratic syllogism for them. What it is not, it is not an existential reality. When you pass 80, I assure you, you put your head down on the pillow and you say to yourself as you close your eyes and drift off to sleep, you know, I may not wake up in the morning, but if I die, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will live too because he promised me that I would live after death uh, and he, his own resurrection gives testimony that there is a life after death. So they're not facing death. The, the second uh, thing is uh, that they read too many books in the dominant culture and they don't go to church enough. I got to tell you this. Sociologists know there's such a thing as a plausibility structure that what people believe, especially if it's countercultural, let me repeat that, what people believe, especially if it's countercultural, has to be reinforced and revitalized by being in regular association with other people who hold to those same beliefs. Uh, in other words, if, if you're going to go on believing the doctrines of the scripture, which the scripture itself say is foolishness, read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, that the God who created the universe should become a baby in a manger, grow up among us, that he gets crucified, and in that crucifixion absorbs the sins of all who surrender to him, and that he's going to be resurrected from the grave, to make those statements to the secular society is totally absurd. That's why the first chapter of Corinthians says uh, it's foolishness to those who do not believe. When you believe, and when that belief is reinforced and revitalized on a regular basis, as it was in the early church, they didn't just come together on Sunday. They came together every day of the week. They met in people's homes and they sang hymns. Uh, and hymns in those days were recitations of doctrines. And, and they not only sang hymns, but they, they prayed together and, and studied scripture together every day. Because the, uh, count, the, they were countercultural. And the dominant society, which was the Greco-Roman world in which they lived, was always at work trying to seduce them into their way of thinking, the secular mindset. Well, young people think they don't need church. They don't need to gather together with other Christians on a regular basis. They think they can maintain their faith in individualistic aloneness. It can't be done. Any sociologist will tell you that. So it's not only that the Bible says neglect not the gathering of yourselves together. Not only the Bible that says no member of the body, it says in the uh, scriptures in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, can say to the rest of the body, I have no need of thee can't be done. You need to be connected to the body. You need to have your faith revitalized, renewed, regenerated. Young people are dropping out of church and say, hey, I can believe in Jesus. Who needs church? You need church because the church is a plausibility structure. And even if you don't like the sermon or think it's irrelevant, the Apostles' Creed, if it is recited, communicates on a subliminal level the basic things you have to believe if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, uh, it's in the singing of the hymns, those, especially those great old hymns. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who causes pain? Oh, amazing love. I mean, if you're going to believe this stuff, You've got to have it revitalized, regenerated, renewed, and this is done according to scripture on the one hand and according to sociological analysis on the other hand. This countercultural belief system against the dominant secular society can only be maintained if you gather together with Christians who revitalize, renew, and regenerate your convictions. And it's amazing the same group that is becoming even more deconstructive or more drive, just driving out entirely is also like the all age groups has this strong desire for community and this real longing to be a part of something. Yes, they do. And they often find that sense of community in the secular world. 
uh, and uh, then they are further seduced into the dominant culture. Uh, you know, they they find it in a fraternity house on on the university campus. They they find it in friends that they meet at the pub or the bar. Uh, they meet it out there in society in general, and uh, and and that that means that they are entering into plausibilities structures that will draw them away from Jesus and the things of God. So you firmly believe there is hope for the church, even if it, even as it manifests itself today in, in America. The church has been around for uh, more than 2,000 years. Uh, you know, America is no big deal uh, for, for the church. Uh, the church is in, in, in somewhat of a decline in the United States. But when I go out to speak, I have to remind people, don't get myopic. In 1945, there were 950,000 Christians in China. Today, it's somewhere around 70 million I mean, you talk about a church growing. That's church growth. In Africa, they baptize into the church uh, something like 50,000 new converts every week. Hey, the church is exploding at a rate that transcends anything, uh, even what was going on in the day of Pentecost on. The church is alive and well. And as we know, people in these other countries are beginning to send missionaries to the United States. Uh, to try to bring Americans back to God and back to Jesus. Uh, so I have great hope for the church. I don't know what will happen here in America. Perhaps the church will further decline, but I believe if it does, it'll reach a point where renewal will set in. Certainly statistical analysis of what's going on in French, France right now should convince you of something, because what's happening in France is there's a, a growth of evangelicalism, like nobody's ever seen. And people are believing the basic doctrines of the evangelical community. Like I said earlier in this interview, I still believe in the doctrines of evangelicalism. I just think the name Red Letter Christians serves us better because the word evangelicalism is in the dominant culture uh, associated with all kinds of negative things that I don't want to assume. But there are there are new churches booming all over France. Who would have ever thought it 10 years ago? Uh, there's a revitalization of the Anglican churches uh, throughout the United Kingdom. As a matter of fact, there are so many churches that are going through uh, intense spiritual revivals that the Archbishop of Canterbury has had to appoint a special bishop just to attend these churches that are exploding spiritually. When you think of Anglicanism, uh, you know, you, you say, whoa, wait a minute, what and yet you find that the Alpha Group growing out of the Anglican community in the United Kingdom is not only winning people in the United Kingdom, but all over the world. So I'm hopeful for the future. I, I think the United States and its churches are, are in for maybe even a harder time in the years to come. But what goes down will, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, be renewed and there will be a comeback. I believe that. And these are what you just mentioned, and the group, that's a, that's a very wide berth of approaches to evangelism and how to do church and and liturgy and non-liturgy and other other sorts of things. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, there's all kinds of renewal movements. Uh, many young people, for instance, are getting turned on to litur liturgy. Um, some young men and women who have graduated from Eastern and from other schools, I guess, also have come together and put out a book called Common Prayer. Uh, Shane Claiborne, uh, a graduate of Eastern, is in that group. Um, Jonathan Wilson Hardgrove is in that group. Go and get that book because it's sold very well. Um, some have said, I don't want to pay any attention to that book because it, it, it's too Catholic. Well, yes, they have tapped into the writings of uh, Teresa of Avila, of St. John of the Cross, of uh, uh, Catherine of Siena, and, and they have said there, that before the Protestant Reformation and even after the Protestant Reformation, there was among our Catholic brothers and sisters a spirituality that we need to tap into and enjoy. And uh, they're bringing this out. And uh, good things are happening as we, uh, as we overcome that, uh, that barrier. Just this last weekend, I was in a, a uh, Reformed church uh, in uh, Regina, uh, Saskatchewan, Canada. And uh, uh, the music group that was there, uh, doing uh, praise music was uh, came over from the Catholic Church, and they were so obviously spirit-filled and enthusiastic about Jesus 
And, you know, and there are those who just write all the Catholics off, and they're not. They're, God is alive there. In many instances, more alive there than in the Protestant churches. Well, and you mentioned some of these traditions. Are, are there particular authors or books which have been major influences on you and your life and ministry? Yeah, there have been. Um, there, uh, you know, just to go down the list right now is, is, is hard. Right. Uh, I, I think of... Uh, I think of the writings of Walter Brueggemann. I uh, think of the writings of, uh, interestingly enough, I, of the, the writings of uh, uh, my, my, my friend uh, Gordon MacDonald. Uh, I think uh, the music of uh, Bill Gaither. You say, I thought you were going to talk about books and theologians. <laughs> when I listen to the music of Bill Gaither, I listen to words that are uh, theologically sound and they speak to me. When he taught me to sing, uh, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Wow, that's really good. Uh, uh, when he uh, talks about Jesus in his songs, it's so, uh, so informative and helpful. So, you know, my theology comes from a variety of sources. Uh, books and theologians are only one source. Uh, the truth is some of my best theological insights have come from people who weren't theologians, who just called my attention to things in Scripture that I hitherto wasn't paying attention to. Uh, another of your earlier books is called The Kingdom of God is a Party. And Do you still believe this? And if so, where's the party? Well, let me just say, uh, that may be my favorite book. Uh, it didn't sell as though it was, it was my a great book. It was seventies? Uh, I'm trying to remember when that was. That was that's a great book for me. That you know, I said for me, it doesn't make it a great book. I'm going to agree with you, sir. But but among my books, I think it, it, it is a great book, and uh, I have to say that what Jesus does in that scripture that we hold up so high is He says this: "My kingdom is likened unto a wedding feast." What could be better than that you know a jewish wedding i mean can you imagine uh i mean we read about the cana feast and uh how they were drinking wine until uh the the keg run dry and jesus has to replenish the wine to keep the party going uh and then then we read in all the redemption stories uh partying and celebration uh, zacchaeus uh the man who's uh, despised by everybody in town. And when Jesus comes through town, he's up in the sycamore tree. Remember this from Daily Vacation Bible School. And Jesus looks up and says to Zacchaeus, Yo, Zach, come down. We're going to your house today. We're going to have a party. He, he, he declares that, uh, that the kingdom of God is this kind of celebration. And uh, we need to bring the joy into, into worship. I, I think that the uh, brothers and sisters who are Pentecostal have contributed greatly to the church because if you go into a Pentecostal church, in most instances, there's an aliveness and a partying spirit and a joyfulness in the music and in the singing. And, oh, it's just, it's just so upbeat. That kind of celebration is what the kingdom of God is all about. And is that the core of the gospel, of the good news, that we're invited? We're invited to a banquet. We're invited to a, a great banquet. And Jesus says, whosoever will may come. I guess finally, uh, I was going to ask you, what's next for you? You're working on a new book. Uh, what are you working on? Steve Brown says that every time you start talking, you start writing another book. <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, for a very good reason. Uh, and the reason is this that my books flow out of my sermons. I, I'm preaching all the time and uh, because I, my messages get out these days over, uh, over DVDs and over uh, recordings of various kinds, I have to constantly come up with new stuff. And so as I strive for new sight, new stuff, I often come up with new insights and new ways of looking at things. And uh, when I preach that, uh, and, and they become convictions for me, I feel, you know, that would make a good book. So my, my, uh, my preaching, uh, my, my writing, rather, flows out of my preaching. This is uh, somewhat opposite of my good friend, Philip Yancey. 
who tells me that his preaching flows out of his writings. Oh. He writes, and then he preaches what he wrote. I preach, and then I write what I've preached. Who do you see as some of the voices coming behind you to sort of take the mantle you've been carrying all these years? I know you mentioned Shane Claiborne. He seems to be very, y'all seem to be very close in a lot well, of your... If you go to your computer and go to the Red Letter Christians website, that's our website, redletterchristians.org. Right. We have a whole list of speakers and writers who I believe are carrying on this uh, uh, tradition of speaking the insights from Scripture that this generation needs to hear. And they're saying things that need to be said, that haven't been said for a while now. So uh, there are many out there that are that are doing that, and I'm not going to go beyond those who are my, my former students. Uh, both Shane Claiborne and uh, Jonathan Wilson Hardgrove were both my former students at Eastern. Well, Tony, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I'm just looking for voices who still believe there's hope and that there's a reason to still pursue God, and you've done that, and I appreciate your time. Good to be with you, buddy. Take care of yourself. Thank you so much, Tony. Appreciate it. Blessings. Goodbye. Always a joy to talk to Tony Campolo. He maintains an intensity and uh, a compassion that has absolutely... Of, of all the things and Tony mentioned he had grown and changed his mind and decided some other things that he felt in his heart were biblical but it is amazing and encouraging to see someone like Tony whose passion and his commitment and his energy have just remained unchanged in, in all these years so appreciate Tony coming on next week I'll be talking to Eric Guzman about his book The Seed A True Myth and about his work as a producer and also Eric's a really, really open and honest guy talking about things of faith. We're going to talk about the Wild Goose Festival and a number of other things where he has uh, had a real part in his journey. So I hope you'll join us then and let everybody else know that we'll be back. And in the weeks ahead, we have some more really exciting guests coming up. So join us right here on the Thinking God Podcast. Now you gotta let the soul shine, just like my daddy used to say.